Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to this week's installment of the Dead Pundit Society. As always, I'm Adam Proctor. Joining me on the program today is Pascal Robert. Uh, Pascal is a Haitian-American. He's an author, an essayist, and a political commentator. His work has appeared in places like uh, the Black Agenda Report primarily, as well as Huffington Post and other outlets. Uh, I connected with Pascal on social media, and I noticed that he had a really consistent and nuanced and militant approach to black politics and issues around race and class, and I thought he would be perfect for my summer anti-essentialism series that I'm running all summer long that most of you will be familiar with by now. And of course, I'm going to be talking about race essentialism with Pascal. In addition to that, he is Haitian. I didn't plan on this. This was totally improvised on his part. But but he gives a 10 to 15 minute uh, Haitian history lesson that perfectly folds into his narrative and his criticism of things like black nationalism, racial uplift politics, uh, the notion of the black misleadership class, which is is something that you hear a lot from the Black Agenda Report guys. Uh, He also goes in on whiteness studies. He talks about the uh, racial management class. Uh, we, We both sort of go in on this notion of racial disparity and using statistics to understand uh, uh, structural racism in the country. And then uh, finally, we, we take our pot shots at Ta-Nehisi Coates and other, other dead pundits uh, who have been so poorly representing uh, black America and trying to, to remove socialism from the political agenda for the past several years, including taking pot shots at Bernie Sanders whenever possible. So that's the show. That's a little preview of what's to come. Check me out on patreon.com slash deadpundits. You can find uh, an episode I did with Adolph Reed that is incredibly topical to today's show. Uh, If you donate $3, $5, or $8 a month, you will get access to that interview. I've got excellent feedback from that interview. I'm just going to tell you, it's amazing. Uh, Adolph Reed is the godfather of black politics and socialism in our modern uh, era here in the United States. And so he has a lot of important things to say. So so check me out, throw in a few bones on Patreon, and you get access to that, as well as a lot of other subscriber-only content. So in between my little intro of the show today and the interview, I'm going to bring you a little one-minute clip of Malcolm X talking about black nationalism. It's a good warm-up for the discussion that's to come. Enjoy. The desegregation decisions and other type of legislation and Supreme Court decisions depends upon changing the white man's mind. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches uh, us that our own mind has to be changed. We have to change our uh, mind about ourselves. In what way? Well, so he teaches us the importance of moral reformation, uh, a knowledge of self. And, uh, for instance, the average so-called Negro, he doesn't think that he can uh, go into business and provide jobs for himself. And because of this, he thinks that he can only get a job from the white man, or he can only get clothes from the white man, or he can only get food from the white man. And we who follow the Honorable Elijah Muhammad are taught that uh, 
the same thing that the white man has done for himself and his kind. Uh, if our people could uh, be uh, wrecked, if they could, if we could be cured of our slave mentality that was uh, indoctrinated into us during slavery, we would realize that just as the white man can do these things for himself and his kind, we can get together in unity and harmony and do the same thing for ourselves and our kind. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Joining me, as I mentioned today on the line, is Pascal Robert. He is a writer, an essayist. Uh, he's a political commentator. You can find much of his work at Black Agenda Report, and he's got a blog that I'll link to in the show notes. Pascal, how you doing today? Hey, what's going on, Adam? Good to, meet, good to finally meet you and talk to you. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad I could have you on the show. You are a uh, prolific commentator. Uh, you and I have uh, sort of agreed <laughs> with each other on social media on, on, a, on a, a bunch of matters rather lately. And I wanted to bring you on the show because your 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 thoughts are very relevant to my summer anti-essentialism series. So we're talking about race essentialism and class on this episode. So start off by telling my listeners a little bit about your background. Some of them may be familiar with you, but others may not. No problem. Well, I was born and raised in New York City. My parents were uh, Haitian immigrants who left Haiti during the uh, Papa Doc regime in the uh, mid to late 1960s. And my introduction to uh, radical politics really stems from my family background. As I mentioned to you earlier, my father had two of his uh, brothers, one older and one younger, who studied in the Soviet Union during the height of the 60s, 70s Cold War era. One studied physics, the other studied chemistry. And uh, the politics of my paternal family in Haiti is that they've always kind of been radical. In, as a matter of fact, during the election that elected uh, Francois Duvalier, my father's brothers and sisters were big supporters of Daniel Fignolet. Fignolet was kind of a mm -hmm. socialist figure in Haiti at that time. And my, my father's family came from kind of the upper middle class, uh, you know, uh, of a Haitian society, but they had radical politics just because of the background and the way they were socialized as Haitian people and, and the way they grew up. Right, so, right. so I imagine Papa Doc uh, ran them out of the country, more or less. Well, it's really fascinating because, uh, you know, because of the stat, my, my grandfather, my father's father was a truck driver in the early 20th century who uh, now you would argue, well, what's the big, how does a truck driver, travel driver become upper middle class in Haiti? Well, when you own the only truck in Port-au-Prince, it's pretty easy because that means all the major commercial class depends on you for business. Hmm. So my, my grandfather, though he was more of a vocational elite or tradesman, he, had inter he, he interacted with all of the major commercial class people in Haitian society and was pretty much a very much respected individual in that social sector. He had a very you know, nice, you know, upper middle class house in downtown Port-au-Prince when it was very, very attractive. He had, they had servants, they had maids, they had all of those things. So my grand, my father grew up in a very kind of comfortable, they were the first ones on the neighborhood to have a car. My father grew up driving a Land Rover. His father, his brothers right. had motorcycles, they had a television before anyone else. So even though my, my, you know, by American standards, my grandfather would have been like, you know, working class blue collar kind of guy. He was actually because the the uh, the the economic market system in Haiti did not provide him a lot of competition as a truck driver. He basically was more as more of a small business owner because everyone depending on him for trade. And if you know anything about the economy in Haiti, it, it generally economically was controlled by an elite international oligarchy made up of many Arabs, Syrians, and Europeans who had come to Haiti in the late nineteenth century, but 
basically acquired dominant market control of the economy of that country because of the comparative advantage they had coming from international locales and the general cultural affinity they had towards trade. So they basically became the economic elite that sadly parasitically controls the Haitian economy to this day. But because they were dependent on my grandfather, he basically lived not so much as a bourgeois, but as a very stable, petite bourgeois a uh, uh, black man. And my father's, uh, if you know anything about Haitian society, class, color, politics plays a lot of role there. My mm. father's family was actually very dark complexion. Hmm. So what's fascinating about that is that they were dark-skinned Haitians who had a certain level of class standing, but they had very radical politics. And even my grandfather himself didn't grow up poor because his 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 he was a beneficiary of his his grandfather who was a man named Washambo Wobey. Washambo Wobey was what we call in Haitian society a grand don. He was a man who had a large amount of property that right. he had inherited from his ancestors who were revolutionary gener- generals in the Haitian Revolution. So my 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 paternal family comes from in Haitian society the kind of decennial military gun don class of black upper middle class Haitians. And there's a lot of that class. When I mean a lot, it's not a lot compared to the general population of Haiti. They're probably less than 10%. But the notion that the elite in Haiti are all kind of light-skinned and mulatto is actually a trope because the grand don class, those men who were the beneficiaries of inheriting land from their military general, uh, you know, family, uh, tended to have a certain amount of status in Haitian society. So there's a much more nuanced kind of class, color, race dynamic in Haitian society than you really are afforded in the United States. And my mother's family actually came from very non-radical uh, elites who were come from the more kind of mulatto elite kind of background. My mother's more fair complexion, but my mother's grandfather, my great-grandfather, was an Anglican assistant bishop in the Episcopal Church. And if you know anything about Haitian society in the early 20th century... The elites, if they didn't want to be Catholic and wanted to be Protestant, they would be Episcopal. So mm-hmm. my, my, my mom's family can trace her lineage back to you know, the 1700s. My father can trace his lineage back to the, you know, the Haitian Revolution. So neither one of them came from particularly uh, suffering classes. And that's another trope we have about Haitian society, that everyone is this kind of poor third world. This, they're, they're, I wouldn't say it's a robust in size, but the quality of life that the upper middle class, and, and these are not, this, this is not the bourgeois. These are not the people who own the means of production. They're clearly petite bourgeois type, the black and mulatto petite bourgeois class in Haitian society lives better than probably upper middle class people in American society comparatively because they have such economic comparative advantage and control over social standing and status. So they have maids, servants, and all of those things. That seems to be the case in a lot of countries in South America and the Caribbean and and, and even in parts of, you know, uh, South and East Asia. You know, we like to, I think maybe that's part of American exceptionalism. You know, we like to think that we're just better off than everybody else. Or maybe it's just kind of like a convenient ignorance that we have. You know, we have to believe that our system, we suffer because our system is the best or whatever. So that's an interesting history. So, you know, Papa Doc Duvalier, but sort of for folks, uh, you know, who, who may be less uh, uh, knowledgeable about that era. Uh, tell us a little bit about Papa Doc and, and what the implications of that were. Well, Francois Duvalier, or Papa Doc Duvalier, was a president of Haiti between 1957 and 1971. He was a dictator who was supported by the United States government, mm-hmm. who basically uh, used a revanchist 
Decillion black nationalism. What do I mean by that? If you know anything about Haitian history, the actual founder of the Republican was Jean-Jacques Dessalines. And Jean-Jacques Dessalines was the founder of the, what was the black republic or the black nation of Haiti. And he actually, in the Constitution, said that all citizens, regardless of complexion, whether they be black, mulatto, or otherwise, were black. And the reason he did that was basically as an affront to the notions of the European colonial powers who were basically degrading the notion of black people who were former slaves being able to rule themselves. So he, he basically leveraged his racial identity to create a narrative to improve the self-esteem of his people to, under, to make them understand that we can create an empire. And he was unfortunately assassinated in 1806 by a, uh, a conspiracy of the mulatto and some of the black elite who didn't appreciate the fact that he wanted to do land reform and empower the peasant class of Haitians who had fought in the Haitian Revolution with land and power, which is something that Toussaint Louverture was not interested in doing. I'm also very big on people understanding that there's a misappropriation or misunderstanding is a better word of the Haitian, Haitian history and looking at Toussaint Louverture as a father of some kind of black liberty. You have to really understand the nuances of the Haitian Revolution. First of all, most people don't know that 64% of the blacks who lived in Haiti at the time of the revolution were not born on the island. They were actually Africans who had been recently imported. Toussaint Louverture was a Creole who was born on the island, though he was black. Those who were born on the island and black actually had a superior class status than hmm. what we call the pejoratively the bosal. The bosal were blacks who were brought as Africans to the island but not born there. So there was a class tension even amongst black people, not including the mulat the mulattoes or you know I know mulattoes are socially you know you know old school term, uh, but that's the way we kind of describe them in Haiti. A lot of people like biracial, but there was a class tension even amongst the black. Uh, slave population because in the slave hierarchy, the Creoles had a higher status because they were more inured to the French culture, would speak French better, and they were not as Africanized. They may normally were Catholic or, and they did not engage in the indigenous African religion of voodoo and all that other stuff. So as a result, they had certain comparative advantages in class standing in the country. Mm -hmm. Toussaint Louverture's worldview comes from the fact that he actually was an elite. Well before the Haitian Revolution, Toussaint Louverture was freed. He owned slaves. He engaged in, in the slave trade. He was a very property elite. So his vision of black freedom was freedom for his compatriots, who were Creoles, who were blacks born on the island themselves. And this reality, this lack of understanding of the reality of the Haitian Revolution is what tends to have people uh, inure this idea of him as being this great liberator. First of all, one of the amazing things that people have to understand in two cents lower chores constitution did not plan to give complete freedom from slave labor to slaves. He wanted to have the bosal or the slaves born in Africa work under the, under the land ownership of the... Uh, of the Creoles and the mulattoes in an indentured servitude kind of situation. Right, right, so he basically right. wanted to create a serfdom, which was a semi-slave, you know, you know, still with some of the same brutality as slavery. And one of the main reasons why, uh, basically, he was in a period in the revolution when uh, when Napoleon's military comes in with Leclerc and they bring their, uh, their 50,000 soldiers in, he's having difficulty getting the Bosal or the Africans born in Africa to fight for him because they do not want to fight under the auspices of his constitution. Mm -hmm. And what distinguishes Dessalines from Toussaint Louverture is that Dessalines was not interested in furthering any of the colonial enterprise. And what people have to understand is that Toussaint Louverture was not 
not intent on fighting for an independent black republic. He wanted to rule a black-faced colony of France called Saint-Domingue, which is pre-revolutionary Haiti. But he just wanted to have the Creoles like himself, the blacks born on the island free, and then be able to engage in commerce. He wanted to re-invite the whites back. So this narrative of Toussaint Louverture being this great liberator is really skewed to those who don't know the nuance of the Haitian Revolution and why Dessalines, who basically was a virulent opposer of the whites, he hated the French more than anything else, not the whites in general, but the French particularly, and when he got into power as the military general after Louverture was captured and sent back to sent to France, he massacred the French because he realized that their position as a, as as an existing force on the island would disturb the social infrastructure and the class standing because they would always have an advantage. Compounded with the fact that he realized that General Rochambeau, who was the French general at the time, wanted to engage in an extermination campaign against all the blacks as well. So Dessalines gets a bad rap because like oh he killed all the whites. Number one he didn't kill all the whites. He killed all the French. And number two, he didn't kill the French women. He gave them the opportunity to live and own land. He did so because strategically it was a necessary way to neutralize their class competition and to preclude a a genocidal attempt by the French General Rochambeau to come back to Haiti and try to do the same to the blacks who had recently recently won the revolution. So he gets a very bad rap in the context of the way Europeans and whites look at him. But he actually is a hero of the Haitian Revolution because he gave birth to Haiti as a country. The problem with Papa Doc, to get back to Papa Doc, is that Papa yeah, yeah. Doc basically lives and is raised during the American occupation of Haiti from 1915 to 1934. And during that time, the mulatto elite, who were many of the beneficiaries from the Haitian Revolution through their light skin or mixed race background, landowners had a lot of the wealth, were, were heavily class biased against the blacks and the dark skin population, who were the majority. In fact, there is a certain type of politics in French. It's called la politique de doubleur, which is how the, the, the light-skinned mulattoes maintain their power structure. What they would do is that they would get a black-faced figure who would, who would basically rise up to a point where he became president on, under a racial narrative of he's going to support the black majority of the population. Once mm-hmm. he got, got in power, he completely acted as their puppet to the detriment of the black majority. And this type of trickery is how the mulattoes were able to maintain their power. It's called la politique de doubleur. And I've made the argument to many people on social media that Barack Obama is nothing but an example of la politique de doubleur being exported to the United States. That's this is absolutely fascinating, Pascal. I mean, we talked a little bit before the show about the kind of outline we were going to have uh, for for what we were going to talk about. And I had no idea that you had this much to offer about Haitian history and politics. But 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 not only is it just interesting for its own sake, uh, but it's also incredibly relevant to the type of observations that you make about uh, uh, American society and black politics, particularly the fact that, you know, you don't buy into this, um, you know, monolithic notion of a black uh, political constituency. And you, you fully acknowledge uh, that there are uh, class and other status stratifications in the black community as there is in any community. And you, you just laid out very brilliantly about how that played out in a place like Haiti, where you have, you know, not even necessarily just whites, but mulattoes, right? P- people we call now like mixed or biracial uh, who have a comparative status or economic and political advantage. And you also have blacks who have a different kind of status than blacks who were born in Africa. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very interesting stuff. And so it forces you out out of this kind of like, uh, you know, um, 
a, a black white false dichotomy exactly. that sort of runs exactly. the show here in the United States. So that's that's this really fascinating. So talk to me a little bit about um, you have a strident critique of black nationalism, uh, but 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 as, as you men- we mentioned off air. Um, correct me if you think I'm wrong here, but there is something sh- about the structural, <laughs> the structural exclusion of of black folks in the United States that does logically lead in the direction of nationalism, even yes. if it might not be the most, even if it might not be the most strategically apt thing to do. So maybe yeah. lay that lay that out. I have us. what you would call a sympathetic contempt for black nationalism. First of all, I'm a former black nationalist. I grew up in New York in the '80s, listening to Public Enemy in a time. New York City is one of the most black nationalist cities in the country. Mm-hmm. You cannot escape black nationalism in New York City because of Harlem. You had the National Nation of Islam, Marcus Garvey. You know the the politics of even even the black radio in New York is infused with black nationalism. So I. I grew up very. I'm very much aware of the discourse, the rhetoric, and and the and the the the, the, the concept of black nationalism. So ex- explain explain that for us, because I want to be. I want to make. I want to. I don't want to assume too much knowledge for my listeners uh, right now. Uh, what what when you say black nationalism, you say okay when you listen to the radio that came through that kind of thing, like the aesthetic of black power and black nationalism. Maybe like spell that out for us. Get real specific. Basically. Black, what, what it is is that the, the conversation on black radio in New York, when you have TV shows like Like It Is, is that black people are a nation unto themselves who are under siege from white people. Now, mm-hmm. you would understand that that's a logical conclusion based on the racial dynamics of this country. Yeah, but the, sure. this, the, there's one simple problem, and this is why my problem with black nationalism doesn't extend outside the borders of the U.S. when you have a nation state. Black people don't have dominion and control of any land to call themselves a nation. You know, the, my main critique of black nationalism is it creates a false political reality in the consciousness of the black community that they actually have a corporate body of that they that they have dominion and control over in terms of the resource allocation like a nation. If you are a nationalist, if you're a Haitian nationalist or a Nigerian nationalist or a Senegalese nationalist, it makes sense because you have dominion and control over a nation state for you mm-hmm. to infuse a certain type of patriotism within that state. But the problem that creates this, this, psycho- this, this, this psychological problem in terms of black nationalism for the African-American community is that they have never been able to maintain dominion and control of their own land to create a nation state. So as a result, politically referring to themselves as in that way only lends itself to collective race management by the white elite, by their own class traders in the black community. So mm-hmm. their desire, black people's desire in America for their own kind of national autonomy and, and sovereignty and, 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 uh, and ability to rule their affairs actually lends itself to the capacity to have a class of elites among them to act as a buffer class to rule under the advisement of the ruling class to the detriment of the black majority. Mm-hmm. So let me back up here because you talk about the the the, the uh, impossibility of having a sort of a national project without land and power. Now this goes back to a lot of folks won't be familiar with this. Some will, but the American Colonization Society was founded in 1816. It's good history, uh, Adam. Oh, I'm impressed. Yeah, yeah. I studied this stuff. I, I, I was in the archives all summer down in Duke, uh, reading the and in, in, in uh, D.C. looking at the papers of this this organization, and this this obviously predated emancipation in 1816, and uh, was founded by you know these good natured white folks, a lot of um, abolitionists and ministers and so on and so forth uh, from the Northeast. 
uh, in, in the United States who, who wanted to assist free black folks in immigrating to Africa. And they founded a colony, essentially, and known as Liberia. Right. At the time, uh, that was one of the arguments. One of the other arguments was, well, we can just because, you know, we didn't care about uh, 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 folks who, who lived in Mexico at the time. We were just, uh, you know, uh, pillaging them as well during that time. Uh, we thought, well, hell, their, their land isn't important. We'll just push all the free black folks down there. <laughs> so that was another option. Another option was just shove them all down into Central and South America, and the other option was export them in their own colonies. Some of them wanted to send them to Haiti, as a matter of or fact. Haiti. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Uh, because Haiti was a threat at that time to to uh, a, a, a slave slaveholders. Yeah, absolutely, slaveholders since since day one. Brazil and the United States were terrified of Haiti uh, for that purpose. So, so. I guess my question is, what, what's the legacy there? I mean, it seems like the Black Nationalist Project owes a lot of its origins to this really uh, reactionary American colonization movement, uh, which was trying to export uh, black, uh, free black slaves uh, and, and, and former slaves to Well, to what's even a more insidious uh, 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 reality is that the, co- the, co- the connection between the American Colonization Society's project and the birth of Pan-Africanism in the United States. Now, Pan-Africanism really kind of has a dual, uh, dual history. It, in, in the Caribbean, there was an attempt to start a Pan-Africanist movement in the late 19th century as a reaction to the Victorian era, era reconquering of the African continent with the, uh, the Berlin Conference and all that stuff. But in the United States, Pan-Africanist rhetoric was being started. All of this as a result of one thing that I, I would say, according to probably I think the greatest scholar of the history of black nationalism is Wilson Jeremiah Moses in his book, The Golden Age of Black Nationalism, does a very good job of documenting how this philosophy comes about. Black nationalism is a reaction to the Fugitive Slave Act, because what happened is that when the Fugitive Slave Act was passed in 1850, free men of color like, uh, you know, uh, not like the not like. Uh, Frederick Douglass, who had been a slave. But the thing that's ironic about black nationalism is that many of its actual most strident advocates, you know, were black men who had never been slaves. You know, they basically were free people of color who were threatened by the notion that they could be, you know, after the Fugitive Slave Act is passed, which was a law that made any slave that escaped to the north could be dragged back in shackles through the mandate of law, that they oftentimes was happening because this was a part of what called black, caused black abolitions as well. They could be dragged back into shackles. So the fear of that possibility caused black people to circle the wagons and basically... Uh, Martin Delaney is one of the major for, for you know for ideological or, or originators of black nationalism, and these these men were not slaves; they were black elites who, hmm. as a result of the reaction of the fear of white racism, felt that black people need to come together and create their own sense of national autonomy. And one of the ways, the strategies that was suggested was to to leave to go to Africa and found the colony of Liberia, which many of them did. So one of my critiques of black nationalism is it's fundamentally reactionary in nature in that its whole intellectual origins as a project is in reaction to white racism. It's not a proactive political formulation that comes out of a national strategic a natural strategic uh, ideology in the black community, but it's reacting to white racism, which is actually one of the arguments that I think is part of the problems with black politics is that it's always in this reactive mode, reacting to white racism instead of proactively trying to develop a strategy of how to escape the economic reality that I think is more pressing to black people, which is capitalism. So 
black nationalism comes is 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 in its origins a black it's an elite project it's a, it, it's started by men of letters who were not slaves who were free even before before uh, 1863 and the whole notion is that we have to find a safe haven for ourselves because of the Fugitive Slave Act, which eventually leads to the Civil War. And, you know, Delaney actually ends up going fighting in the Civil War. And it's funny how his desire to leave depends on how much status he gets as a general, in the Civil, as, a, as a military officer in the Civil War. So part of the problem I have with black nationalism is that it's, it's an ideology that doesn't even come from the political aspirations of the majority of black people at that time. It was right, even right. framed by black elites at that time, barring the aberration of, of, uh, of uh, David Walker. Now, David Walker was a figure in African-American history in the early 1800s who wrote a very, very, I consider him one of the first black revolutionary pieces of writing in, the, in American history. Uh, David Walker's appeal to the colored people, basically asking black people to take up arms and to fight slavery wherever they stand. It's a very revolutionary document. And he uses certain nationalistic discourse in it. And many black nationalists like to say that he's the first black nationalist. I think that's a bit of a stretch, but you can make the argument that he did view black people as one corporate body. But the real origins of the formulation of viewing, and, and Jeremiah Moses does not really consider uh doesn't talk about David Walker in his book as as the father of black nationalism. But when you're talking about black nationalism, you're talking about Martin Delaney, and you're talking about these black men who Basically, as I said, were elites who were free people of color who were reacting to the fact that their status was being threatened. And they formulated a posture of repatriation back to Africa that structured that basically became a project of black nationhood within the United States as a reaction to that fear. Much of their project was based on what I call uh, the politics of redemption. They needed to prove to white people that they could do things. So escaping to Africa wasn't even about finding a safe haven. It was about we need to create our own African nation state to prove to white people that we are worthy of equal treatment. So part of the problem I actually again have with the Black Nationalist Project is a lot of the rhetoric and discourse is based on an assumption of, 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 of black defectiveness or deficiency. There's an essentialized notion that black men and black people are not whole because we have not proven to, pe- black, to, to white folk that we deserve to be to be to be respected. This kind of rhetoric is existent even in the Nation of Islam, Marcus Garvey. It's a strain that's persistent throughout black nationalism. This kind of black people are defective. And one of the things I resent about black nationalism is that it often takes this rhetorical posture that there's something defectively wrong with black people. I do not believe mm-hmm. there's something defective with black people. I think that black people are disproportionately denied of resources because their race is a used as a way to obscure the white majority that they also suffer from capitalism to make them think that only black people suffer from poverty. Now, let's talk a little bit about something that's hot on on, on the, the socialist left right now, primarily because of R.L. Stevens, and that's his critique uh, that's appeared in uh, Jacobin and Viewpoint magazine uh, over the past couple of months that he's talked on. Uh, he's done the podcast circuit about that. And he, he talks about how uh, Afro pessimism uh, comes around. Of course, this is a later development. God, I hate I, I think I'm probably I, I think I'm one of the few people who hate Afro pessimism more than R.L. Stevens. <laughs> so you're the you're the you're the person to talk about then because uh, you know this a lot of this black nationalism to be honest with you I don't think a lot of white leftists really have a good conception of like say nation of islam and 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 other kinds of more like revanchist reactionary black nationalism uh it's something that they might see a video on you know catch it on the news feed every now and then but they don't really have the context to judge it it just looks like a respectable 
a young young man wearing a tie, right? You know, talking about how you need to shower every day and and present yourself nicely and and you know that sounds okay, I guess, right? But if you don't understand, you know, where it's coming from, uh, you might think it's more benign uh, or maybe even a good thing. To well, the thing is that one of the one of the things that's very important, and this I, I suggest if you want to get, I don't think there's a book that will give you a better understanding of the original formations of Black nationalism than this book, The Golden Age of Black Nationalism, 1850 to 1925 by Wilson Jeremiah Moses, because it explains the vacuum in which this thing is born. Black nationalism is innately regressive, in my opinion, because it's not a progress. It's not a revolutionary project. It's a conservative project because it 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 demands that the problem with black people is in within themselves. It doesn't understand that black people are a product of the way capitalism enslaves them, and this is why there's a strong combination between black nationalism and capitalism. I.e., mm-hmm. Marcus Garvey. I.e., the NOI. These guys do not challenge capitalism. They have no if problem. If you purify with yourself, if you purify yourself, yeah, you, purify, you can find prosperity. Yeah, exactly. You can find success exactly. so that that jives well with the prosperity gospel that you find in a lot of churches exactly. across the country well, i mean I, see this is the thing there are different forms of black nationalism there is the classical kind of uh masculinist kind of garveyite noi uh uh, uh type of uh, black nationalism and there's also petite bourgeois black nationalism du bois is a petite bourgeois black nationalism the talented 10th theory of collective racial uplift, which is, is, which is, is a, a horrid name in itself, the concept of uplift, that just because you have a college education, you have to bring your lowers up to your level because you are the one that has been inured with the, the role of carrying the race on your back. It's elitist off the bat. The bat. That's also the way the, the, the racist Southerners talk, too, by the way. You yeah. know, so maybe we should change our discourse up. We don't want to be talking like, uh, you know, the racist South. Well, this uh, is in, a strong. I mean, I would argue era. that th- that petite bourgeois <laughs> black nationalism is the actual default political posture of most black people today, particularly college educated black elites. They have no I mean, the, the language of racial uplift is considered in a, a, a good thing to them that we have to uplift the race. Uplift the you know, by the grace of God and affirmative action, you're in college. What makes you? Who are you to uplift anybody? Mm. It also says more. It th- that that claim it says way less about society and the world you want to live in as it does. Uh, it, it's it it, it it's, it's 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 all about them, right? Because what that what that signifies is that I'm the one. Who's supposed to uplift these people? So therefore, I am the the be- the social better. Um, it gives you a sense of status, and you know. Well, in the, the thing that you know, I, I, what I'm trying to convey to you is that this is the way, hands down, most uh, most black people in America view themselves. Whenever you hear people say "us people," "we people," "our people," "my people," politics, they're black nationalists. Hmm. We, whenever you hear black folks say "we as a people," that's a black nationalist. Hmm. Yeah. You know, and what what and I mean, it's it's it is organic in that it's not something that white people created. It is an organic formulation, a political formulation and default posture in the black community. But it's completely reactionary, not only in terms of its uh, conservative nature and tone, but it's, it's 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 antagonistic to progress because it leverages your whole ability to get liberation. If you believe that we are still quote unquote oppressed as slaves, because I don't think black people are slaves anymore. If you mm-hmm. it, it leverages, I'm proving something to white people. 
it's 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 fundamental. I wrote a piece. One of the pieces that I'm actually proud of is a piece called "The Politics of Redemption," and the whole premise of the piece is that one of the reasons we get Barack Obama is because we believe that he is a good way for black people to be redeemed to white folk. That look, we have a president who can take care and manage your empire better than you can with a nice black wife. He ain't got no babies out of wedlock. He's wonderful. I mean, it's it's ridiculous because the whole co- concept is based on a notion that black folk have low self-esteem. And we got to prove to white to white folk that we're human, and it sets up this kind of irrational trap because you have already acquiesced that white people are the barometer by which your humanity is judged. Right, right. And this, I got to tell you, I love this critique because um, I'll link to that article in the show notes. It was on Huffington Post uh, several years ago, and it's really good. The video that's embedded in there, you did an interview based on that with uh, Yvette Carnell. Uh, it was which was just fire. Uh, that was one of the first videos I saw of you. So I'll link to that in the show notes. But but that critique jives very well with my criticism of what I call uh, 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 revolutionary pressure politics. Because, like, for example, we have these big marches, you know, in D.C. every other every other month, you know, nowadays. And, and people, you know, have these radical revolutionary slogans. And that's great. It feels good. It looks good. You know, good press comes from a good, good revolutionary radical pictures and slogans. And, and everybody gets their warm and fuzzies. But the whole success or failure of that sort of depends on uh, whether or not you put uh, pressure on those who are in power or not, right? It's 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 a it totally rises and falls on whether or not you can convince uh, the power brokers that they ought to do something about this this particular problem. Um, and I know there's a lot of other base building and other kind of things that go on at these kinds of marches, but but it seems like you have a similar pressure politics uh, cri- criticism there. Yeah, well, I mean, again, I mean, the, one of the constant problems of this whole black nationalist formulation is that it, it, it renders black people as a position of actually asking white folk for something to fix them, as opposed to demanding policy that changes the country. And this is one of the main reasons I have a problem with this notion of disparity studies, because what it does is that it makes the concept of coalition politics with whites who are similarly situated in class uh, obsolete because it creates this idea like whiteness studies does that white people don't suffer from capitalism, which fits the exact purpose of racism. Racism in America is a tool to make white people think that they don't suffer from capitalism because only those Negroes are the ones who have the problem. So once you start creating a paradigm with disparity studies that tells you that all white people are privileged, even though they're sucking up on, on you know on alcohol and heroin and dying three like, like flies all over the country, then basically it denies the ability to have a coalition between two groups of people who are also being disparaged by capitalists, capitalism, even though blacks are largely being suffered more because of the way race uses them, challenging mm-hmm. the system, which, by the way, is not the thing that the power elite in this country have always been more afraid of, going back to Bacon's Rebellion, is poor black people and poor white people coming together Getting to challenge together. capitalism. That's yes. why they killed Fred Hampton. That's why they, they needed Booker T. Washington yep. to, to shut down the progressive era with the Colored Farmers Alliance and the Farmers yep. Alliance. And it is and what this type of discourse and by the way, black elites are always or traditionally oftentimes used as co-conspirators in shutting down those coalition politics because if you understand how the race man- management paradigm is necessary to maintain uh, the oppression of black people for the fu- purposes of capitalism, the black elite need racism to make their brokerage to white people necessary. So if you have a black-white coalition that challenges capitalism effectively, their utility to the ruling class is challenged and they can't get their patronage. Um, hey, there's a, a lot of folks should look into this. There's a long history of this. There's the Wilmington riot 
Uh, it happened in the late 1800s, and it was there was a fusion government that came into power in Wilmington, North Carolina. And uh, the fusion government at that time, all, most of the Republicans in the South were black. It was Repu- the Republicans were then the party of Abraham Lincoln. And uh, there were some populists who were primarily white, agrarian populists, and, and they got together, the populists and the Republicans, and, and, to, and formed a fusion government in the, in the city of Wilmington at that time. This is a, part thriving of the, this, this is a very important part of history that most people don't know anything yeah. about. They, they have no idea. And I spent this summer digging the archives and, I, and I, I'm looking at letters. So long story short, people should look this up. The Wilmington riot of the late 1800s, 1896 or seven, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, long story short is the white folks, uh, the business leaders, uh, the petty bourgeois white supremacists who relied on the, you know, uh, the domination of the free slaves and, and, and the poor whites uh, basically staged a coup. Uh, ran out the elected black officers and the and the the white populace, ran them out of town or killed them, and uh, there was a gun battle and and by that I mean a massacre. Multiple people were killed, and uh, you know the 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 white racist Democrats in that time took power back, and nobody you know sort of flinched at it. So you can see what happens when the the poor whites and and the black folks get together. Um, it's it's a huge threat to the status quo um, in, in American history. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's that's the I mean, like I said, going back to Bacon's Rebellion, even before America was a country of itself, the whole concept of white identity, which uh, I forgot the name of the brother who has the who wrote the book. It's a very good book on um, uh, um, it's like the origins of whiteness in America. Theodore Allen. Theodore <laughs> Allen. Yeah. Theodore <laughs> Allen basically yes. explains how whiteness is created in the United States as a reaction to an interracial coalition between blacks and whites in Bacon's Rebellion to basically have poor whites believe that they have some type of advantage over slave, black mm-hmm. slaves and uh, avoid them from challenging capitalism. And it's, all, it's always fascinating to me that the black people on my, in my social media timeline who are always the most like literally viscerally opposed to interracial coalition. There's a piece today in the root talking about Bernie Sanders, white women's problem, black, black women's problem that talks about how oh, Bernie Sanders is appealing to those white people. You know, the ones who, the ones who, who, who voted for that, you know, segregationism, uh, ta- uh, Donald Trump again, you know, by the way, the root is a totally elite Henry Louis Gates provocation owned by, uh, uh, what is that uh, the, the international media company now? Well, it used to be owned by the Washington Post, but I forget who owns it now. But uh, here are these college-educated Negroes crying about the fact that Bernie Sanders is reaching out to black people, Latinos, and poor white people is classical in terms of how elite blacks who are given authority or abil- ability to neutralize interracial coalition. I mean, why do you think you have Joanne Reed uh, 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 and all of these other black media figures try to destroy Sanders before he gets out of the gate? And I wasn't a Sanders guy because I'm an anti-imperialist and I think that Sanders has no critique of imperialism at all. But the bottom line is that Sanders appealed to, to the possibility of saying that we want to challenge capitalism and bring in democratic socialism, which Malcolm X died fighting for, which Martin Luther King died for fighting mm-hmm. for. All of a sudden, now you have the black media elite, which is nothing but the arm of the black misleadership class, which we at Black Agenda Report refer to the black political class that misleads the black community into advocating for policy that works to its disadvantage, now saying that Sanders is a racist. A man who marched with King is a racist when Hillary was basically saying that black children are super predators. It's comical. And this is how this is right. how black politics works. This is how black elites shape black politics to, to create paradigms that work to the disadvantage of the black community to protect their patronage position. That's absolutely. I mean, this is this is fire stuff here. We're talking about, um, you know, uh, 
we're talking about essentially anti-racist leftists doing the work of racism uh, for the racists by keeping folks uh, separate. So I want to get back to the racial disparity narrative because I recently fired off a post uh, that went viral on Facebook. I sort of was just kind of, it was like, you know, t- one at one o'clock in the morning one night and I was reading Kiangi Yamada Taylor's book on uh, Black Lives Matter and she fires off a whole host uh, page after page of racial disparity statistics, you know, uh, black folks in this country, in this state are, are you know, 35 percent poverty, white folks, you know, this. And so the whole point of racial disparity, whether it's poverty, whether it's, uh, you know, unemployment, underemployment, whether it's uh, wealth, whether it's health outcomes, all these types of things. The point is to kind of a uh, try to demonstrate that there is a racial disparity. Right to try to demonstrate that there demonstrate that there is something that goes by the name structural racism in the sociological data, uh, which it does successfully. And anybody would be a fool, or just a fucking or a racist, <laughs> to deny that across the board the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and all types of other exclusions and and the static nature of wealth transfer across generations. Uh, has led to a widespread racial inequality. But the problem with these statistics is that they never take class into the context. So you have a striding critique of racial disparity statistics. So maybe lay that on us. Yeah, I mean, I, I believe that, first of all, racial disparities, I, I have never met a black person in my life who was shocked that black people have a lot more, a lot less wealth than white people. They, I mean, I, I ask this question all the time. I said, listen, 60% of black labor until 1960 in this country were either sharecroppers or domestic workers. Why are we shocked that 60, uh, like in, in 2017, that black people have a huge, massive wealth gap to white folk? What is shocking about this? Is it unjust? It's uh, Of course it's unjust if you assume that we don't live in a capitalist society that was based on racial stratification. But the problem, the problem I have with with disparity studies is, first of all, it's very simple to explain why that reality is. First of all, for example, when you use a statistic like that, that I mean, like, you, you know, black, black people were denied the ability to accumulate wealth generationally. Of course, there's a disparity problem. And number two, it's a direct reaction to the fact that the subprime mortgage crisis stripped black people of 50% of their wealth. And now is a time, instead of having blacks and whites come together to challenge capitalism, because whites are suffering all over the country now to the point where you have the National Review saying, damn, these white poor people, they're so lazy. I've never heard a white, white reactionary right-wing publication disparage poor white people, which they normally needed as their support political support structure. Right, so what right, that right. means is that basically American capitalism is in crisis, but instead of creating statistics to show how everyone is suffering from it, make it seem like, oh, it's those Negroes who are poor again. Look how much less money they have to us who benefited from the New Deal, have had wealth and generationally, and basically this system was, was created for as a white settler colonial project. Isn't this horrible? We gotta do something for these Negroes. Let's give them some patronage and fat back that's gonna increase a greater disparity between the blacks and themselves and the poor blacks and the rich blacks anyway and also not challenge capitalism which is what what, i mean when you when you leverage disparity studies to the white power structure what are they going to give you they're going to give you they're going to give you what i call biscuits and fat bag they're going to give you mickey mouse policy that doesn't challenge the status quo that's going to be managed by elite negroes that they're going to pocket mostly for themselves and increase greater disparities between rich blacks and poor blacks Right. Very, very well said. That's fire stuff, man. Uh, you know, I think 
look, I mean, the what, what the the kind of I was being kind of slick here, but what I said in, in my posts, and, and maybe I'll post this somewhere publicly so people can read it for themselves, is I said if our theory and our strategy is supposed to be intersectional, how come our statistics aren't intersectional? Because I mean, you know, there are a hell of a lot of white sharecroppers, uh, poor, poor as hell too. People fail to realize that Plessy versus Ferguson not only dis- dis- not only disempowered poor blacks, it disempowered non landowning whites who also couldn't read. They were being affected by the cha- the, the, by the, the grandfather clauses and the reading requirements as well. Mm-hmm. So the question there is, unless you're just trying to score points or uh, produce a lot of white guilt, so we can usher in these you know shitty democratic uh, liberal policies. Uh, you know, I don't know, maybe tax breaks for black folks or something like that, right? Like whatever it is that Hillary Clinton might have in mind. Well, what, what the argument is being used to do is to, to carry on the back of what Ta-Nehisi Coates did in his his, his comical in his, his in his you know piece that talk about you know his 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 call for reparations during a black president who's governing the country where black child poverty goes to thirty eight percent. You're crying for reparations now. Why? Because your black president love project is falling apart because Negroes are suffering in a way worse than they have in 45 years. So let's let's turn there, because a lot of the racial disparity has a has a natural outcome. You might even argue that uh, the the reparation style, uh, you know, uh, argument, the the pro capitalist reparation style argument sort of has uh, racial disparity politics that, you know, as as it's built in uh, justification. Uh, because it doesn't seem to address the poverty and inequality, uh, you know, that happens in, in, in other uh, racial, uh, you know, backgrounds. And by the way, let's make this clear. The top 10 percent of black families own 70 percent of black wealth. The top 10 percent of white families own 51 percent of black wealth. If there's any way to further guarantee the disparities within the black community gets worse. But we have these elite Negroes who are able to maintain their positions as brokers is to have disparities based policy to try to rep to 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 redress the issues of the African-American poor so that, again, the elites are the ones handing out, doling out the fat back and biscuits and the black poor get the shaft again, which is exactly what happened in the civil rights movement, which is very well covered in the book by Preston A. Smith that talks about how black elites were actually complicit in the segregation that Ta-Nehisi Coates tries to say blame Whitey because he did it by himself, which is not the case at all. Racial democracy in the Black Metropolis, Housing Policy in Post-War Chicago by Preston A. Smith. Cedric Johnson uh, in several episodes back recommended that book. So if you folks don't have that, I have it myself. It's on the list. I've skimmed it already. The argument is solid and interesting. It's a, it's a, it's an absolutely important history. If you want to understand how to overcome, uh, you know, uh, some of these issues, because as I talked about this with Cedric at length and we don't have to go into it, but you know, there's this kind of, and we talked about at the very opening of the show, there's this kind of like a romanticized, aestheticized, uh, exoticized version of what the radical civil rights movement was and what it represented. And yeah, sure, there were some great slogans. There were some heroic figures, no doubt. Uh, but the actual lived legacy, the consequences of that period are something very, very different. And I think the left needs to uh, read up on that stuff to see how that played out so that we don't get played again. Uh, you know, we got conned. Uh, in that process. And, uh, you know, we, we don't want to get played again. So, uh, we're talking about reparations. Uh, hit me with that. Let's talk about Ta-Nehisi Coates, his argument, his position, um, in his, in, in the kind of like, uh, uh, what do you, what would you call his position? He's a petite, he's a petite bourgeois, a petite bourgeois 
African-American male with no class analysis within the black community who's trying to basically leverage white, white guilt to get the fat back and biscuits to make black people a little bit better than they are in a capitalist society that will not improve their condition unless capitalism is altered in this country. Okay, I'm going to play devil's advocate. But, but Pascal, but Pascal, listen, listen, listen. This is what they'll say. They, they always say it real smug like too. So I'm trying to I'm trying to mimic this. Right. Listen, listen, listen. But what you don't understand is Ta-Nehisi Coates might not be perfect. He might not be extra revolutionary. But isn't it worthwhile that he has people talking about this? I mean, isn't he starting a discussion? Well, what good is a discussion that's going to go nowhere but replicate the problem? <laughs> hey, there you go. Mic drop. <laughs> Mike drop. That's all it needs to be said. Right. I mean, that's that's what I get most often is Adam. Ah, you know, I agree with you, but you're talking about this a little too much. You know, you're really you're really crapping on the people and, and, and they're doing the best they can. They have no, good they're not intentions. doing the best they can. Tyler, he's kind of as the son of a black of a black panther. He knows that he knows the crap that he's shoveling. You know, when, you know, this guy targeted in a targeted fashion took a dagger to Bernie Sanders and the whole project of socialism in America as if there was no such thing as Martin Luther King saying he's anti-capitalist or Malcolm X saying that socialism is a more effective uh, process for black people. Listen, there, there is an attempt by black elites, coach included, to make socialism thing like seem like it's some kind of white, white liberal hippie project that is divorced from black politics. Socialism is something that is not alien to black politics, going back to the Colored Farmers Alliance, going back to the black socialism oh, yeah. communists of the early 20th century, going back to Lucy Parsons, going back to a number of figures, Du Bois, uh, uh, you know, all of these figures, Paul Robeson, who, uh, you know, there's a black radical tradition in this country, and I was really angered that we didn't have enough people who adhere to the black radical tradition like myself that is based on anti-capitalism, anti-imperialism, anti-racism, and anti-sexism. And that what Coates basically made it seem to his black and white readers is that that tradition is alien to what these Bernie bros are fighting for because they won't talk about reparations, which even within the black community is something that is still a project that resurfaces every time the black adherent to it needs to get his racial, racial bona fides stamped by black people. Bruce Dixon has a very good statement about racial reparations. He said, reparations is the policy that black politicians use when they're in trouble. Every time that they're in trouble and they get in problems, they say, reparations! As a means to you know rally the troops to get black people say, yeah, we are owed a debt. We have a claim as descendants of slaves. And and what all it does is situ- set up a situation where you're going to have a bunch of liberal elite Negroes, as Adolf does in his very crit- good critique of reparations, parceling out the fat back and biscuits, and they're going to get the bigger, cu- the bigger cut. And it's not going to change anything. Because as I said in a video with Jared Ball, even if you give every black person in this country a million dollars, a billion dollars, with international finance capitalism, that is not going to change the racial restructuring in this country because that wealth is not going to be secured in a way that allows it to maintain long-term survival in the black community because they're still going to be racially outcast and looked upon as those as, as the as the exotic other who is to be suppressed because of their lack of ability to socially uh, ad- adhere to the needs of American capitalism. You have to set up a situation where capitalism no longer, longer, longer function, functions and we have an economic order and paradigm that basically redistributes wealth, collective ownership of all resources, state as well as private, comprehensively, cooperative economic building and something that that denies the ability of interest to generate wealth for the banks who are the parasitic factor in the economy in the first place. That's what my model is. Because you always hear people say, well, if you don't want to have capitalism, what's your model? Well, I have a model. I just gave it to you. Why can't we use it? That sounds very simple, actually. I mean, you laid it out in a very complex and nuanced fashion. I don't mean to call it uh, simple-minded. But at the heart of it, it's very simple. 
And I think a lot of people, a lot of the race managers in the country want to want to convince you that there's there's a mystical complexity to the whole thing. Right. And, and, and you know, I, I'm, I'm a little bit critical of Kiangi Yamada Taylor's book on Black Lives Matter, from Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. And we touched on a little bit of that in Cedric Johnson's uh, interview. Uh, I've talked about it elsewhere, and I'm going to have Adolph Reed on the show. He promised to come back on and do uh, a full-on critique and assessment of that book. Well, I have the book. I haven't read it yet, so I'm not, I'm not going to feel confident. I mean, I, as I told you in, in our earlier conversation, I've read – before uh, Kianga uh, got uh, really attached to the Black Lives Matter thing, I had read a lot of her writing in the in the uh, International Socialist Workers, and some of it was even on Black and Gender Report, and I really liked it because it seemed that she had a very good class critique of black politics and the function of the black political class, which we call the black misleadership class. So I'll I'll be sad to see her fall back into race-specific remedies in this Black Lives Matter book, which which doesn't shock me because that's exactly what Black Lives Matter is going, where it's going to go. Black Lives Matter is nothing but the new politically correct identity politics version of a black misleadership class with better, with better sexual orientation politics. That's all it is. Right, right. And I don't mean to denigrate because I know people might be screaming into their uh, smartphones or t- or uh, laptop screens right now and saying, well, you know, uh, that's not you're not being fair to that book. She really does paint a much more complex picture. And that's true. She does. She does talk about to an extent. There's a chapter on, on what you call the black misleadership class. She does talk about the fact that that uh, within, uh, you know, the black demographic in America, uh, you have extreme wealth inequality for the top 10 percent. Uh, of, of the black community. Uh, so she does talk about these things and that's good. That's important. But it seems to me that her, what, what the way that, that, that I, I came out of the Cedric Johnson interview, uh, thinking this through is that talking about this black liberation struggle as, as, as this sort of like inherently revolutionary and politically viable movement, whereas Cedric and others show quite persuasively, uh, a race has never provided a ready-made political constituency in the way that these folks claim that it is. No, it's never had. It never has. No, not not in the civil rights movement, not in the black power movement. What it did... Not in Haiti, from the story that you laid out. Well, not in Haiti either, because the project was sabotaged by those who didn't want to adhere to it. But the bottom line is that when you have race-specific identitarian notions of remedies for an oppressed group of people, it always does something that happens in any national social structure. It creates a tier of elites who end up being able the brokers of the affairs of that subsection, subaltern class of people to the benefit of the overall arching controllers of capitalism. If you don't have any kind of international association of people of like-minded class position challenging the capitalist order, it's going to replicate that paradigm over and over again. So we've got about we've got about five minutes. I, I will, I'll try to keep these around an hour. I, I feel like you and I could probably wrap on this for three hours and I'd love it. But but for the sake of my viewers, they'll start tuning out if I go much longer than an hour. So let's take the last five minutes here. And we've laid out the critique. It's scathing. It's uh, it's 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 uh, airtight. Uh, there's a lot more that could be said, but we'll have to leave it there. Let's let's spend five to ten minutes on the positive case. You have the microphone. You're talking to the broadly uh, millennial socialist left who comprise my audience. Apologies to the Gen Xers and boomers who tune in. Uh, But you've got the mic. Tell us the kind of orientation that we need to have. Uh, There are a lot of people flooding parties like Democratic Socialists of America, Socialist Alternative. There's a huge uh, cadre that's forming around like broadly Jacobin uh, left social democratic politics. Let me tell you why this is. You know what's tragic about this moment? Can I tell you what's tragic about it? 
For the first for the first time in the history of the African American community in this country, black people are operating in a political space to the right of white progressives. To the right of white progressives. That's that is that's scathing. And I see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say it because I don't think I have the clout, but I think you're right. No, <laughs> you I know, know what I'm right. Mean? And this is what happens to following this neoliberal Obama-Hillary-Clinton model of rendering our black politics to a faction of the Democratic Party that's fundamentally reactionary, was designed to basically encapsulate the, the black community and destroy it, if you want to call it a black community, with policies from, you know, three strikes are out and the mass incarceration to the subprime mortgage crisis and everything else. And this is what black people like Joy Ann Reed are sending the black community no. to force their hopes on. The Root and all these other publications and all these other black elite-led but you know, black misleadership, black petite bourgeois organizations, fraternities, sororities, the links, you know, uh, you know, the, the national organization of Negro women, they are all foisting black they, because they are the black misleadership class that misleads the black community into politics that is going to destroy black people. They are foisting black people into politics that work in a correct, a direct opposition to what black people need, which is a class based challenge to capitalism to redistribute distribute wealth because black people are disproportionately poor. And anything that does not do that is basically just circle jerking. Let's talk about public sector trade unions, uh, because that seems to be the thing that's left out of the equation so much. Obviously, there's a very twisted and difficult legacy of unionism, trade unions in America. They've become, uh, you know, uh, uh, corporatized and, and, and anti-democratic and all the rest of it. I've had Jane McAlevey on the show in, in, in months past to talk about this and what we need to do about it. But it seems to me, you know, uh, if you want to talk about how to help real people real poor and working class people, you know, public sector trade unions are disproportionately uh, filled with uh, 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 women of color. And so, uh, you know, it seems to me that's that's one of the most important things. So let's lay out a positive case. What do we need to do? What, where are some of the areas that we need to work on to develop power? Oh, I'm a big advocate of unions. I mean, first of all, black people are disproportionately the most unionized demographic in the United States. A larger percentage of black people are unionized mm-hmm. than white people in this country. Unions are basically the key to stable economic development, stable income, stable pe- stable pensions and health care. And, and anybody who is black who you see, who you, and I've had black people say, well, unions are racist. I will make the argument if you want to use this quote unquote chic rhetoric of anti-blackness if you are anti-union you are anti-black because more black people per capita are involved in unions that's providing stable labor to black folk than there are black people in college that is where the black community needs to focus on is having economic paradigms like unions that provide more equity in terms of uh, dollar for dollar what you get for your work and job security so public sector unions private sector unions trying to basically fight for 15 trying to create a paradigm. I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of universal basic income. I'm a fan of having a cooperative economic model where the public and the workers cooperatives own a third of the actual shareholders of, of, of private corporations. Why can't we have one third of all private corporations over $5 million in, in profit be one third owned by the private originators of the business entity, one third owned in the public trust for shares for citizens of the United States and workers of that company, and one third owned by the government to make sure there's no abuse of power by that, by that corporation with, again, a non interest-based, equity-based lending paradigm, when if you go get a mortgage for $100,000, instead of paying a fixed interest rate that makes the bank a parasite, tell them that you're going to get a percentage of the increase in market value of the house when I sell the house. What's what's so impossible right. about that? These are what you might call non-reformist reforms. They are reforms, right? We're not, you know, we're not storming the barricades, but yet they're the kind of reforms that lead us out of the, the repressive logic of capital and the kind of way that the control of, of the elite, uh, you know, ruling class uh, exerts on society today. Absolutely. 
Good stuff, man. Any any final parting words about some of the emphasis emphases that you would like to see on the left today? No, I want I, I, to, to to Joanne Reed, Ta-Nehisi Coates, and all those other Negroes who have a problem with class, black people talking about class. I have a very simple statement, and I can say this as a Haitian and someone who lives in African and with in the African American community in the United States. There is not a place in the world where you cannot find that black people from Haiti to Harlem have not been sold out by class. They're class traders in the black community. And until black people realize that they have to confront their class traders in the black community, they will never be free from white oppression. Pascal Robert, that is fire, man. I appreciate that final sentiment. Any parting words to my audience? What do you tell? So that that's kind of like instructions to say, you know, uh, 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 black uh, militants and Marxists within the movement. What do you say to this kind of like, uh, unfortunately, uh, largely white, not certainly not exclusively white, uh, but but far less racialized kind of professional managerial class that has that has, that has uh, radicalized under say Bernie Sanders and, and those types of folks. Well, I mean, may, I, I, su- I would suggest to them to maintain a good class-based anti-capitalist paradigm, even though their, their position as workers are as compradors for the system, working to the, to the detriment of the masses. But listen, man, I practiced law. I had a real estate title company. I went to an elite law school. I, you know, I was trained to be a comprador, you know? So, I mean, I'm not, I, I can't act like I'm some guy sitting with a revolutionary, you know, you know red flag with the, with, the, with, the, with, the, with the hammer and sickle who doesn't understand that you got to feed your kids and feed your family and that you got, you know, $300,000 in student loans. I know what that means. But that is, and once you realize when you actually get with the proletariat, with the masses, and realize how much people are being cannibalized in this capitalist order right now, and that there is no way to maintain capitalism unless they go to some kind of global third world war situation and try to restart Keynesianism like they did in the World War II, that they're going to have to find a way to change this paradigm in a way that's more democratic and that changes the equity situation where more people have access to wealth resources trickling down than trickling up. Very well said. This is good stuff, man. I, You know, the one thing that I hope to contribute, and I've I've gotten this feedback from people, and I think what you've you've provided, Pascal, for myself and the audience, is a language and a conceptual framework to identify these dynamics as they play out in real time in front of our very eyes. I think even if a lot of us are suspect of a lot of these issues that you raise, we don't really have the language and, and the expertise. Uh, to call it out for what it is and then try to work towards something more productive. So I think, you know, that's what I'm trying to provide. And you've given us a really excellent framework. Uh, So thanks again, Pascal. I look forward to having you on the show again in the future uh, to talk about events as they come up. No problem. And that's our show, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. I had a really good time doing this interview. I knew that Pascal and I agreed on most topics because we had that history of uh, conversing with one another on social media. But I honestly, I had no idea how fire that man is on the mic. I mean, he can just, he can rap about this stuff uh, all day and I would have let him if it wasn't for you guys uh, you know, who have other things to do with your lives. So thanks so much for joining us. I hope you learned a lot. I know I did. It was very clarifying for me to hear these, uh, the framing that Pascal gave these issues. So if you like the show and, uh, you know, you're a first timer or you're relatively new to things, check me out on patreon.com. I have some subscriber only content that I know you're going to love, uh, particularly as I mentioned at the opening of the show, I have a two hour interview with the godfather Adolph Reed Jr. We referenced him quite a bit in the episode because uh, I really take my lead on these matters from him in many senses. 
like a lot of others do. Uh, and Adolf really gives a master class in uh, all things black politics related. Uh, he goes back to his history. He is a child of the 1960s, and so he was there when black power sort of set off. And so there's no better person uh, situated to to lay out the contradictory outcomes uh, from of black power and the neoliberalization of the movement than Mr. Adolph Reed Jr. So check me out on patreon.com slash dead pundits. You can donate $3, $5, or $8 a month, and you will get access to all of the subscriber content. I also have a long version of the interview that I did with Katie Halper, the fantastic Katie Halper of the Katie Halper Show. We talked about a lot of dead pundits. She's hilarious and incredibly knowledgeable. So there's a lot of a lot of uh, stuff content, subscriber-only content, rather, on the Patreon site now, and there's going to be a lot more in the future. So throw in a few bucks Get access to that. Support the show. Uh, keep this thing running. And uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Support the new left agenda. And uh, yeah, lots of good stuff coming your way. The summer anti-essentialism series rolls on. I've got several great episodes coming up. We're finally doing an episode on universal basic income. I've got David Bush out of uh, Toronto, Canada, who's a union organizer there. He's going to come out and tell us why maybe UBI isn't the panacea that some folks are making it out to be. But we're going to try to litigate that debate here on this show. Uh, In addition, I've got Walter Ben Michaels, who's going to come on. That man's a legend. Uh, he's, uh, he has a really strident critique of the diversity, uh, you know, diversity agenda that, uh, a lot of institutions are putting forward today. It's a really insufficient way of handling inequality that of course has no interest in talking about class. I'm, I've got another, uh, interview scheduled with Adolf Reed and, uh, we're doing, a, a, an episode finally to wrap it up with, uh, uh, to talk about state theory, right? There's a lot of confusion, around the Marxist theory of the state. There's the neo-Marxist theory of the state, and we don't understand what classes are and how you know how they relate with the state. And what is the state anyway? Who knows? Well, have no fear. We're going to clear up these issues for you here in the Dead Punnet Society. And uh, so, long story short, got a lot of really great content coming your way. I'm excited about it. Donate on Patreon. Let's keep this thing going. Check me out on Twitter at Dead Pundits. Until next week. Try to stay cool out there. It is hot. All right. Dead Pundit, out. Oh, this new crazy mother...